Amen. And so, beloved, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 9. We'll be in verses 30 to 50. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50. So recently, my wife and I, we discussed the idea of making a list of lessons that we would like to teach our children, Jace and Braley, before they grow up. You see, if the Lord were to give us 18 years with our kids, there are, some, there are a number of lessons that we would want them to learn before they leave the house. And some of those lessons are, one, we would want them to know the gospel, We'd also want to teach our kids how to study the Bible, teach them about scripture and memory. We want to teach them how to share the gospel, how to find a good gospel preaching church, how to serve people. We want them to know how to interact with the police, how to balance a checkbook, and how to change a tire. Those are a few things that's on the list. The list is pretty exhaustive, but those are a few. You see, we, we want to do this because we believe that these lessons and others are essential and will help prepare them for life on their own. Well, as we come to our passage this morning, we will see Jesus privately instruct his disciples on a number of essential lessons for them to grasp and live out in order to be faithful Christ followers. And so Jesus, he will instruct his disciples on lessons. And so Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50, please stand for the reading of God's word. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee. But he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little one such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell. The unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. 
And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. You may be seated. And so our big idea for this morning on this passage is as Christians, we should pattern our lives after Jesus' instructions. As Christians, we should pattern our lives after Jesus' instructions. You see, in this passage, Jesus is about to teach his disciples four lessons. And so it's going to feel like we're going from class to class this morning. And so first period is going to be the lesson on the son's suffering. Second period, a lesson on service and humility. Third period, a lesson on support and gospel ministry. And fourth period, a lesson on self-denial. So we see a lesson on the son's suffering, a lesson on service and humility, a lesson on support and gospel ministry, and a lesson on self-denial. So the first point, a lesson on the son's suffering. Look at verses 30 and 31. Then he left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he was killed, he will rise three days later. So on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples make their way through Galilee, which is a common place of ministry for Jesus. But this time, he is trying to fly under the radar. You see, he he doesn't want to draw attention to himself because he wants to instruct his disciples without distraction or disturbance. You see, in the second half of Mark's gospel, he does less public teaching to the crowds and more private teaching to his disciples as he prepares them for ministry upon his ascension. And here we see class has started. First period is regarding Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. He says that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. This is Jesus' second passion prediction. He wants his disciples to understand that he will suffer, die, and rise. And did you catch how he described it? First thing he says is that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. He says betrayed. Some of your translations may say handed over. You see, he didn't use this phrase in his first prediction. Some may wonder, well, who will betray him or hand him over? People may wonder if this is a reference to Judas betraying Jesus and handing him over, which I would say that is a good question. 
Judas will certainly betray Jesus. But the Greek tense verb for handed over is likely in the divine passive tense, signifying that God will be the one who hands Jesus over. Now, one may see, wonder, like, why would God do this? Well, he would do this for our salvation. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, all have gone astray, all have sinned and we have gone astray. We have turned to our own way, and the Lord laid upon him, being Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, for God did not spare his own son, but gave him up. You see, God will give his son into the hands of men. They will take Jesus and crucify him. But he won't remain dead. He will rise from the dead. You see, Jesus, he speaks with great certainty about his suffering, and he does so because it was the very purpose of him coming into the world. The Old Testament promised it, and he came to fulfill it. His purpose in coming was to save sinners by dying for our sins. You see, through Jesus' death and resurrection, he will bring about a new exodus where he will deliver us from slavery to sin. You see, our salvation will come through his suffering by him bearing God's wrath in our place and for our sins that we who trust in him will be saved. You see, he stresses his death and resurrection to the disciples because it's central to his mission. Now, we as his church, we stress the message of his death and resurrection to people because it is the only message that saves all who believe. Beloved, if Jesus goes to great length to emphasize his death and resurrection so that the disciples would get it, then we too should go to great length to understand this message and proclaim it. Look at verse 32. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. You see, Jesus, he plainly tells the disciples, and they didn't get it, and they were scared to ask him about it. Now, one may wonder, like, why, was, why are they afraid to ask Jesus about this? You see, we really don't know. Truth be told, I mean, I really don't understand either because it was just last week that we saw the nine disciples ask Jesus, how come they were unable to drive out the demons? See, it's not necessarily the fact that they are afraid to ask Jesus a question, but they're afraid to ask Jesus about this. Now, we don't know why, but we can only speculate. It could be that they remembered how Peter was rebuked when Peter rebuked Jesus in the first prediction. Or it could be that they feared that understanding would be worse than what they had thought. Or it could be that they may have feared the ramifications that Jesus' suffering will have upon their very own lives. Are we unsure? It could be a number of things. What we do know is that they're afraid and they didn't get it. And y'all, this is the end of first period. Jesus is telling his disciples about his suffering. Flies over their head. They don't get it. But we have to go on to second period. Which is the lesson on the sons, or the lesson on service and humility. Look at verses 33 and 34. 
But they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. So as they traveled, Jesus heard this argument about who was the greatest, and later he brings it up to them. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? Check their response. But they were silent. Crickets. The disciples were embarrassed and ashamed regarding the topic of their argument. Is he like kids caught eating candy behind the couch? The disciples were busted. Jesus exposed their self-centeredness, their pride with this question. And guys, peep the contrast. In the first point, Jesus is teaching and predicting his suffering and humiliation. And in the second point, the disciples, they're concerned about their exaltation. They have placed themselves on a pedestal. They have been influenced by the thinking of their day because they are concerned about their self-exaltation. You see, ever since sin has entered into the world, humanity has been concerned and consumed with self because sin has made us self-centered. We think that we're great. We write and sing songs like, I'm the world's greatest. We compare ourselves to one another, and we want people to sing our praises. Do we not post selfies and then wait for likes and comments? You see, for some of us, our value is not in the fact that God has made us and that Christ has saved us, but in being great and receiving praise from men. And what's ironic about this situation is that the Son of God is among them, and yet they are concerned about who is the greatest. His presence should result in laying to rest such foolish comparisons. It's like the players on the Golden State Warriors team arguing with one another about who is the best shooter when their teammate is Steph Curry, the greatest shooter of all time. You see, he's not the greatest. I mean, you're not the greatest, he is. And what happens here is Jesus, he uses their argument to teach them about service and humility. Look at verse 35. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. You see, Jesus flips the concept of greatness on its head. And we see that he has done this a number of times throughout the gospel. You see, the values of the kingdom of God are countercultural to the values of the world. Jesus says, die that you may live. Whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He says, if you want to be first, you must be last and a servant of all. You see, the world teaches that greatness is by being the best, the baddest, and the brightest. That you must be preeminent. We're taught to look after me, myself, and I, to pursue greatness at all costs, to use people as stepping stones and serve them in as far as it helps us advance. But in the kingdom of God, greatness is about humbling oneself. It's not about being self-centered, but other-centered. In humility, we are to count others as more important than ourselves. We are to look not only to our own interest, but to the interest of others. 
You see, in the kingdom of God, it's not about ruling, but about serving. It's not about status, but service. In the kingdom of God, it's not about how high can you climb, but how low can you go. And Jesus' very own life modeled this lesson that he taught. We saw it in the scripture reading in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, where it says that he, though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Coming in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the Son of God who is the greatest among them, he came as a servant. And he came to serve. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus' words, they're convicting because our flesh opposes the idea of being last and a servant. You see, in this body of flesh, we have this innate desire for preeminence. And though Christ has saved us, we still war with the flesh, especially in this area. This is why we must daily crucify our flesh with its passions and desires and pray And renew our minds and put on Christ. You see, beloved, a question for us is, is your view of greatness more along the lines of how the world views it? Or is it along the lines of how Jesus teaches it and models it? Beloved, are you committed to exalting yourself? Or are you committed to serving others? This would be good to discuss with members and pray for one another in. You see, being a servant of all means that we seek opportunities to serve, that we're not above any task, from serving in children's ministry to taking out the trash to serving the poor. It means that we associate with the lowly, not avoid them. Look at verses 36 and 37. He took a child had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. But whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. And so Jesus, he gives a living example of his teaching. He embraces a child and exhorted the disciples to accept and serve little children. And this is huge because in their day, Little children weren't highly valued in society because they couldn't do anything for you. You see, in economic terms, little children were liabilities, not assets, because you can't climb the ladder of prominence by tending to the marginalized. You see, society devalued them, yet Jesus values them greatly and tells the disciples to do the same. You see, the principle is that as Christ followers, we are to humble ourselves and deem as significant those who the world view as insignificant. 
We are to display kindness to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to our neighbors, those who are considered the least of these, the destitute and the lowest. You see, no one should be exempt from our service. And we do this because we follow Jesus out of a love for him and a love for them. You see, as we serve Christ followers, it's as if we're serving Jesus. Jesus, he, here he equates welcoming little children in his name to welcoming himself and God the Father. And we see him say the very same thing, similar things, in Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 to 40, where he tells those who are on the right, when he says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And when they had asked him about this, the Lord Jesus said, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You see, Jesus, he values and loves those who society dismisses. He takes this child in his arms, embraces him, and with that, let me talk to the children and the teens real quick. You see, in this passage, children, we see how Jesus takes a child in his arms. Friends, Jesus loves and values children, and it's not because of what they can do for him. You see, unfortunately, some people will value you because of what you can do for them, because you can help them get a good grade on an exam, or because you can help them perform well, or you can help them win a game. But Jesus values people not because of what they can do for him, but because he loves them. So much so that he died on the cross for men, women, and children and resurrected from the grave. He saves all who trust in him. Children, teens, just as Jesus took this child in his arms, he will welcome you with open arms if you place your faith in him. You see, you don't have to wait until you get to a certain age to place your trust in Jesus. You can trust him today. Children, I would encourage you to talk with your parents about it, what it looks like, about what it looks like to place your trust in Jesus. And I would encourage you to do that this very day. Don't wait until later. He will embrace you and not reject you. Trust in him. Beloved, we see following Jesus, it means that we must be humble servants. If our Lord humbled himself and served us, then we should reflect him in his humility and service. You see, if our Lord was among us as the one who serves, then who are we to not serve? May we grasp Jesus' lesson on service and humility, and may we apply it to our lives. You see, as Jesus concludes second period, it's time for us to go on to third period. Well, we will learn the lesson on support and gospel ministry. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. You see, the apostles, they witnessed someone successfully expel a demon in Jesus' name. 
And instead of supporting this good work, they tried to stop him. This man is likely a believer. He believed in Jesus' authority over demons and was therefore successful in expelling a demon in Jesus' name. You see, God worked through this man's faith. And the apostles who recently failed to expel a demon witnessed this man's success. And so they try to stop him. And did you catch why? They said that it was because he wasn't following them. He wasn't following us. You see, this man, he wasn't an apostle. He wasn't in their camp or their circle. They had this elitist and this exclusivist mentality. But look at how Jesus responded. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. You see, Jesus, he corrected and commanded the disciples to not stop him or others from doing mighty acts by faith in Jesus' name. You see, those who believe in Jesus and do mighty acts in his name cannot and will not speak evil of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says that Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the, by the Holy Spirit. So he's like, man, they ain't against us. They are for us. They are on the same team as us. You see, Jesus, he teaches us to not be exclusivist or elitist. You see, there will be brothers and sisters and churches who aren't in our circles, who aren't in our camps, who aren't in our denominations, yet they are faithfully laboring for the advancement of the gospel. Beloved, we shouldn't try to stop them but support them. You see, and we can be tempted like the apostles to be elitist, where we speak ill of faithful gospel-preaching churches that aren't like ours. You see, for us, it can look like us looking down and talking down on churches because they're not a non-marks church or because they, don't have, because they have multiple sites or multiple services, because they don't sing hymns or pray as long or as much in their service. Beloved, we need to be careful. You see, though churches may differ from us, they're not against us, nor are we against them. You see, we shouldn't have a disposition where we only want God to work through churches that are in our network or in our denomination or have our ecclesiological convictions. Jesus' correction is instructive for us. We shouldn't talk down on faithful gospel preaching churches that we may disagree with. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't disagree or that there isn't room to discuss our differences. But it means that we can and should praise God for what he is doing in and through them. An example would be like Presbyterian churches. You see, though we disagree with them regarding infant baptism, we should praise God for faithful gospel preaching Presbyterian churches and pray that the gospel will advance through them. You see, we're on the same team. We preach the same gospel, and we're laboring towards the same goal. Beloved, one way that we can do this is by praying for churches. We do this in a pastoral prayer, and we can also do this in our personal prayer time throughout the week. 
Beloved, may we be a church that prays God for the good works that he is doing through faithful gospel preaching churches. May we not be known for being critical of other churches, but for celebrating what God is doing in and through them. You see, Jesus expects, expects that there to be some sort of gospel partnership between Christians in other circles. Look at verse 41. He tells his disciples, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will not lose his reward. First he says, whoever gives you a cup. Obviously this person was not an apostle who would do it. And yet, they serve one of the disciples because the disciples belong to Christ. You see, there may be times when we are in need and Christians who aren't in our circles may serve us and refresh us. All because we follow Jesus. Beloved, what a demonstration of hospitality and humble service that we see in this passage. And peep the motive. It's not for personal gain, but solely because you belong to Christ. You represent him, and so they lovingly serve you. Beloved, we are to love Christ and his people, which we are a part of, and serve them in his name for his glory and their good. And did you catch the deed that was done? It wasn't something that was spectacular. It wasn't something that was mind-boggling. It was giving a cup of water to drink. Something so small. Yet look at how Jesus responds. He says, truly, I tell you, he will never lose his reward. You see, Jesus notices and commends a minor deed done in his name. And this should instruct us that may we not only seek to be faithful in the big things, but may we also be faithful in small things, doing small deeds in his name and for his glory. You see, Jesus, he commends small acts done in his name, like hospitality or telling your kids about Jesus, serving your neighbor. He notices it and he rewards it. He says that they will not lose their reward. Now, when speaking of a reward, Jesus is not saying that that man has merited salvation. All who are saved are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. But rather, this good work done in Jesus' name is evidence that God has saved them. This is fruit of faith that Jesus commends. He says that he will reward. You see, he tells us to not be elitist, but to support and partner with other, other gospel preaching churches, and partner with other Christians who aren't in our circles, who aren't in our camps, to not look down on them, but encourage them, to serve them and partner with them because they're not against us, and we are not against them. And so we see the lesson on support. And now let's head to the final class where we see a lesson on self-denial. Look at verse 42. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown 
into the sea. You see, though Jesus commends good works done in his name to his other followers, he now gives a strong warning of condemnation to anyone who is a constant source of temptation to sin towards any of his followers. You see, Jesus, he condemns those who causes Christians to fall away. Now, it's important for us to understand what he means when he says, fall away. Some translations may say sin. Other, transla- other translations may say stumble. You see, the Greek word for fall away, it gets at causing someone to stumble or sin or stray away from the will of God. And so, therefore, I believe what he's getting at is tempting one to sin or stumble to sin, stumble into sin. And we see him say, fall away in verses 43, 45, and 47. And in the context, Jesus is referring to sin. And we can affirm this because we know that no true Christian will fall away from the faith and lose their salvation. Jesus will not lose one. But instead, by God's grace, we will persevere into the end because God is preserving us. And here we see Jesus opposes those who constantly tempt and entice his followers to sin against him. You see, such lifestyle is evident, makes evident that the person is not a Christian. You see, Christians, we are to be sources of encouragement, not sources of temptation. We are to point one another to the Son and not to sin. We are to encourage obedience, not disobedience. And when we do the opposite, we are to repent. Beloved, are you pointing members to the Savior or to sin? Beloved, when members spend time with you, are they edified or are they enticed? So be good for us to think through. Prayerfully, it would be that brothers and sisters are encouraged and not enticed to sin from our time together with them. And may we pray for one another in this that we will be sources of encouragement and not sources of temptation. You see, Jesus makes known that the consequences of being a source of temptation, they're severe. He says that it will be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You see, back then, heavy millstones, they were used to ground, uh, ground grain, and they were so heavy that people couldn't push them, but rather beasts had to turn them. And Jesus is saying that if you are a constant source of temptation, this heavy millstone will be hung around your neck, and you'll be thrown into the sea. As frightening as that would be, Jesus says, well, he ain't saying that's what happened. He would say that it'd be better for that to happen. Because as frightening as that will be, he's saying that what will actually happen to you is more terrifying than that. Now, one may wonder, well, what is that? Well, it is experiencing the wrath of God for eternity. He is promising that he will judge and he will judge. Here we see Jesus cares so much for the little ones that he wants his followers to not be tempted at all. And that he will oppose any who are a constant source of temptation. And then he turns to his disciples and instructs them about self-denial. Because though they follow him, and though we follow him, 
we are not exempt from temptation to sin. Look at verses 43 on down. He says that if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. You see, though saved, though we are saved, we wage war with the flesh. Our flesh rises up and we will be tempted to sin. And here Jesus is commanding us that we should deny ourselves. That whatever it is that tempts us, we should cut it off. You see, back in chapter 8, when he gives the, qualif- the, the demands for following him, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Beloved, this denying oneself is not a one-time thing, but that we should ongoingly deny ourselves, and we are to put to death any sin and temptation to sin. You see, this, this exhortation is comprehensive. If what you do or where you go or what you look at causes you to sin, you must put it to death. We must take drastic measures to put our sin to death. And we ought to do it because we love Jesus, because we follow him. You see, he died to save us from sin, and so we must kill whatever tempts us to sin against him. And when he talks about cutting it off, or cutting your, eye, cutting your hand off, or cutting off your foot, or gouging out your eyes. Jesus isn't encouraging the literal amputation of body parts. He speaks in hyperbole to communicate the seriousness of sin and the lengths we should go to not sin against him. You see, Jesus, he's not making light of sin, and neither should we. Sin has deadly consequences. So he encourages and commands us to deny ourselves. We are to prize Jesus over sin and put to death whatever tempts us to sin against him. Jesus hates sin, and he died to save us from it. And those who have been united to him, we have died to sin, so we should not seek to live in it. Jesus tells us that we should cut off our hands, cut off our feet, gouge out our eyes. Jesus is telling us that we should not coddle sin. We shouldn't try to control it, but we should kill it, even if it hurts. What this means is if attending a country club tempts you to drunkenness or lust, then you should cut and cancel your membership. If social media is your source of temptation, from envy to lust, then you should delete it. If your smartphone is a constant source of temptation towards sexual sin, then you should get rid of it and get a phone to where you can only text and make phone calls. If bars, movies, TV shows, or books are tempting you to sin, we must cut these things off that we may follow Jesus. Romans chapter 13 verse 14 says that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Beloved, what drastic measures do you need to take to cut sin and temptation out of your life? 
this would be good to consider. And not only to consider, but to discuss with other members. You see, may we not cut off these limbs in isolation. We shouldn't try to fight temptation and sin on our own and in isolation, but we need the body. A question for you is what members know of the ways that you are tempted to sin against God? Who is encouraging you to help put to death sin and temptation in your life? May we not do this in isolation. May we not be alone in this. You see, Jesus, he makes it clear that we cannot have our Savior and our sin. If we're following him, then we must deny ourselves and part ways with sin. And as painful as it may be to cut off sin, the consequences of persisting in sin are worse. Three times he says it in verse 43, 45, and 47. He says that it is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. You see, to refuse to part ways with sin means that you are deliberately living in sin, and this lifestyle will result in eternal consequences. Damnation, hell, where one will bear God's wrath for all of eternity. And in verse 48, he talks about hell. He quotes Isaiah 66. Where he says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You see, hell is a place, it's a fixed place of final, everlasting judgment. Where the wicked will eternally dwell. Where the worm ceaselessly devours and the fire eternally consumes. It is a place of conscious, endless torment. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there won't be one moment of relief. All there will experience the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb for eternity. You see, people often say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. And I would say that those who say this don't know the God of the Bible at all. Because the God of the Bible never changes. God is as merciful and just in the New Testament as he is in the Old Testament. And Jesus often talks about hell. And when he does it, he does it to warn people of the judgment that, they, that is to come so that they may repent. Heed his words. Now one may wonder. Is Jesus communicating that you can lose your salvation? I mean, he is talking to his disciples after all. But y'all say, it's a good question. But I would say, no. Jesus is not communicating that one can lose their salvation. You see, the person who persists in sin and refuses to part ways with it shows that they have never received salvation. As Christ followers, we have died to sin. We are new creations in Christ. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are to now put to death our sin. How can we continue to live in sin when we have died to it? That was Paul's question in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. You see, salvation should result in a pursuit of godliness, not a persistence of sin. Let me say that again. Salvation should result in a pursuit of godliness, not a pursuit or a persistence of sin. 
You see, we show the sincerity of our faith by constantly denying ourselves and following Jesus and repenting when we don't. You see, Jesus, he declares that persisting in forbidden temporary pleasure will result in eternal pain. The stakes are too high. This is a matter of eternal life or eternal death. It is not worth it. It is far better to deny ourselves and follow Jesus no matter the cost. He says that those who do this, who cut off the limbs, who gouge out the eyes, he says that we will enter life, that we will be in the kingdom of God, where by his grace we will be with him and know the fullness of joy that's in his presence and the eternal pleasure that's at his right hand. True and everlasting, permanent joy for eternity. Beloved, following Jesus is costly, but it is worth it. May we love Jesus and hate our sin and be relentless in putting our sin to death in Jesus' name. May we remind one another that following Jesus is worth it. He is the greatest treasure. He is the prize. May we persevere to the end. Now let me address non-Christians. If you're not a Christian, I am glad you're here. I want you to see that hell is a real place. It's no fairy tale. It's not a place where non-believers will party or turn up. But rather, it is a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth a place of conscious, endless torment. All who refuse to trust in Jesus will be there and they will suffer God's wrath because they didn't trust in the only Savior who can save them from judgment. Friends, I would implore you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Flee the wrath that is to come. Jesus promises that there will be a day of judgment, and he who promised is faithful. There will be a day of judgment. This God who promises it is the same God who came to save sinners from judgment. The very God that you've offended by your sin is the same God who loves you and sent his son to save you. He loved the world and sent them so that the world would not be condemned, but we can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, how loving is it for God to reveal and to warn us of the wrath that is to come so that we may trust in his son? I would implore you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus and be saved. If you want to talk more, about this, you can talk with any of the members after service. They would love to have this discussion about trusting in Christ and being rescued from the coming wrath. Look at verses 49 and 50. It says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. You see, here Jesus, he transitions from talking about judgment to talking about purification. Now, this is a very difficult verse. I believe what he's saying is that all of his disciples, all who follow him, will be salted with fire. This is language of sacrifice. 
You see, in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, we learn, we learn that in the Old Covenant, they were to add salt to the sacrifices. But also, in the Old Covenant, some sacrifices, and particularly burnt offerings, they would be burned up with fire. And so Jesus, he is using the words of salt and fire as it relates to his followers. Well, somebody would say, well, what does he mean? This fire is not judgment, but purification. This salt and fire are to be involved in our offerings. As we offer our lives as living sacrifices and spiritual worship, we're to be seasoned with salt as we go through trials for our faith in Jesus. And it's through these trials that we will be conformed to Jesus' likeness. It's like what Jamie preached on a number of weeks ago in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. That is, through these trials that our faith is being tested and it will be proven more precious than gold. So Jesus is saying it's through these trials we'll be conformed more into his likeness. And in the midst of it all, we are to remain devoted to him. Continuing to purify ourselves as Christ is pure. And that's how we remain distinct and live at peace with one another. And so, beloved, may we do this. May we not just hear Jesus' instructions, but may we heed them and live according to them by his grace and for his glory. And do it all of our days until we see the Son return. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. We praise you for your grace, your grace in sending your son to save sinners like us. We praise you for the instructions that he gave, that he gives, for it is for our good. Lord, may we trust in him. May we serve like him. May we partner with the saints in gospel ministry. And Father, we pray that we'd be a people who prize Jesus over all things. That we would have a posture of relentlessness in putting sin and temptation to death that we may follow you all the more. Knowing that Christ is worth it. That we get him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.